Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the... the... shit. What's that thing I'm here with? I'm sorry, this never happens to me. Okay, close my eyes. It's on TV, it's in papers, it's not old. News! There it is! I'm here with the news, and you're listening to Derek Public Radio. Damn it! This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, C.M. Alexander, alongside Joshua Kahn. Hey, everybody. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, constant readers. And today we are reading The Dead Zone as part of our Patreon selection series picked by Jared Hazelwood. We're reading through Chapter 14, if you're following along, and if not, major spoilers ahead. And we have Josh leading our discussion. Before we start on the book, I just want to tell you guys... I'm really glad we get to do this podcast together. It's such a good time. Just, just come here. Give me, give me a hug. See, I'm in. Whoa, whoa, what? Stop! Five out of five blue chambray shirts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! Oh my god! That was crazy. Ben, are you you okay? Your eyes just like went real dark all of a sudden. I hugged CM. I just I saw. Like through a, a dark hallway, a, a vision of the future. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> That's a, well, I hope you're okay. Yeah. Do you think you can hear the episode? Here, help me up, Josh. Help yeah, me all right, up. All right. All right. Oh, 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 oh. I don't like that sound. <laughs> oh, it's, sorry. I didn't see the future that time. That's just the noise I make when I jizz in my pants. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> That's anyway, this one's a good book. Much Let's like much like in the last book, sometimes when you're getting a helping hand, you have no choice. <laughs> good night, CM everybody. Is so upset about I'm the just movie. disappointed, <laughs> not mad. <laughs> oh no, this is a perfect segue into our book today because the dead zone is very, uh, very. There's a lot of touching. A lot of touching in Dead Zone, <laughs> and uh, a lot of things I still don't understand, because this is my first time reading this. Have, have Am I the only one? I read it when I was a teenager. This is something I wanted to discuss. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of this that I'm going to have difficulty discussing <laughs> without major spoilers. Interesting. So I feel like this, most of my contribution to this episode is going to be asking what you think. <laughs> oh, oh I already know what's going on. <laughs> I can definitely tell you that what I didn't see coming was our protagonist leaving the book for six chapters or so. Very long time. That was very weird. You know, what? let's just jump right into it because every direction I think this book is going, it doesn't go there. Because I thought this first chapter was going to be very important. And it kind of is, but it also kind of isn't. We meet John Smith, who is six years old. CM, tell us what happens to little Johnny Smith. John Smith is practicing his ice skating skills on the lake, and there are other kids, and there's a hockey team playing, and he wants to see if he can skate backwards. And he gets so into it that he doesn't realize he's skating backwards right into the hockey area, and he gets hit over the head very, very hard with a hockey stick. Wielded by a 160-pound hockey player (laughs) barreling into him. A a fifth grader the size of a linebacker. (laughs) He blacks, so he hits his head real hard and then repeats blacked out black ice over and over for a while. He comes to seeing a bunch of people standing over him and he, he tells Chuck, who's one of the adults there, not to jump black ice anymore. He says, don't jump it anymore. It's the the black ice is like an unconnected thought because what he is meaning is don't jump this old shitty truck battery anymore because it blows up in his face and he loses an eye. Yeah, that's so fucked up. (laughs) But because it's the 50s, all of this happens and his parents never learn of it. Yeah, that's so fucking crazy. <laughs> this whole scene happens, and they're. I was like, oh, it's all these kids playing in the woods or whatever on this frozen lake. But then it's it pans over, and there are a bunch of adults 
just hanging out there around yeah. burning tires, which becomes a recurring thing of whenever Johnny gets these precognitive flashes, he smells burning rubber. Which is outstanding. But also, what were those adults doing? <laughs> Getting drunk. That's why like, our parents think that we're a bunch of weenies. In the 50s, <laughs> wasn't a thing. Yeah. That was, if you could get knocked unconscious and your family would never find out about it. Because mm-hmm. you're not a whiner. <laughs> <laughs> you get up and grow up some dirt on it and you get back out on the dirt. ice. Friggin' millennials. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and after this weird, kind of delightful accident on this... Uh, well, it's just... Uh, this, what? This, Explain yourself. It's the... We talked about it earlier. It's that, like, the uh, idyllic day. This one bad thing happens in this... The otherwise idyllic day. And then the book jumps to kicking a dog to death. I hated that. Because <laughs> we meet Greg Stilson, the traveling Bible salesman, who also has some anti-communist and Jewish pamphlets. Just for good measure, I guess. This was really hard. I'm listening to it. Read by James Franco. Ugh. Weird and choice. Gross. Oh, I, I didn't choose it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't know if any of our listeners have seen The Room or The Disaster Artist, but the voice he does for the doctor in this book, same voice. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. So I, all I saw is that guy. <laughs> the whole time. I could not read this book if one of my favorite characters sounded like a bad Tommy Wiseau I just wanted him to be like, oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I hope Nailed there's it. a Mark later. <laughs> there is. The nurse's son. Oh, yeah! Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, Wiseau talks about that more. Wiseau. Is that what his, uh, what his name is? I don't know. You, In the Disaster Artist. That's Wiseau. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, Sam Wysick is the name of the doctor. (laughs) Do you guys know what this means? What? what? Tell us. These two things live in the same universe. They are connected. They're twinners. Because they have similar, but (laughs) not at all the same name. (laughs) And voiced by James Franco. (laughs) Why is always Wysack's twinner? It takes place in the Keystone universe (laughs) because... He's the twinner of Wayne Gretzky because both of their names have a, a Z in them. What are you talking about? Just say yes. Yeah. All right. Yes. Yes. And yes. Yes. yes okay. And well, that doesn't. It's, yes. And that's not. Okay. That's how on. we improvisers move on. <laughs> then we go forward to adult Johnny. Johnny and his God, early twenties. Early twenties. Dating because a fellow teacher named Sarah that they, they met the same way that happens in 112263, the chaperoning freshman, and then they get horny for each other. Fucking also James Franco. Also James yeah. Franco. Ugh. A lot of things are adding up. Do you know what this means? <laughs> 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 this opening scene with Sarah and Johnny and the mask. What did you guys think about this? I have a crush on Johnny. <laughs> Of course, <laughs> that's so on brand for you. No. And I kind of hate uh, Sarah. See, okay, so oh. this was my question because, well, first of all, backing you up, kind of have a crush on Johnny. <laughs> He's such a cool dude. He's like, so fun. I just want to hang out with him. Hope nothing bad happens to him oh, ever. <laughs> it's going to be a real nice book <laughs> just about a cool guy that we all like. Um <laughs> But I was interested because in our group chat, you messaged, mm-hmm. and I was, as always, way behind in the reading, <laughs> like, <laughs> way behind you guys. And you had messaged us, I think I hate Sarah, and I don't, like, I read the entire section that we read today with that in mind, oh, no. <laughs> trying to think, okay, at what point and for what reason does CM hate this character? And I don't know. She gets on my nerves the way Franny does Okay. in the first part of this. Afterwards, after she reconnects with him when he wakes up later, I, I don't have a problem with her. I sympathize very strongly with her, and I want to go on this journey with her as part of that. But initially, with this whole mindset while they're first starting to date and just her personality, she's very Franny to me. I, I don't know like if I can explain just it in this more first beyond scene. that. Because I totally agree with that. Yeah. Uh, And that's when I sent that message. Okay. 
I, I get that because yeah, in this first scene with the mask, she comes over to pick up Johnny, which is alone really funny to me <laughs> that he's just like adorable. <laughs> yeah, she goes over to pick up Johnny, and he jumps out and scares her with this shitty sounding it's, Halloween. It sounds mask. like a Jekyll and Hyde mask. Yeah, I think that's kind of how it's described. One one which, half is like fine, and the other which half is, is some interesting foreshadowing. Is it Jekyll it, and Hyde mask? It it the well, change it, she sees come into his eyes when he oh. yeah. yeah because throughout the book as he has these like spells he people become scared of him when he does this seeing the present <laughs> question mark <laughs> but yeah it, it's very strange foreshadowing once again this is something that I can't talk about because <laughs> I, I know what it's about. So Sarah gets scared by this mask this whole time. She's like charmed by him and talking about how they met. They seem really great together. But the whole time she's like, I just don't know if I love him, despite the fact that I literally have nothing bad to say about him. <laughs> and, and comes to the decision she's going to sleep with him later, which is great. Like, yeah. not judging that at all. Go for it, sister. But she just well, is indecisive and whiny to me. Yeah, I, I gave up on that when it was like her whole reason is she was coming from a super toxic relationship. But also it sucks that she does not pass the Bechdel test like well, even close. And later she quits her job to have a baby. Yeah. And, and people do that and that's fine. Fine. But it doesn't seem... I don't know. I feel like if if she had, if things had turned out differently and she had been with Johnny, she could have done whatever yeah, she wanted I feel to like do. After Johnny's accident, she becomes a passenger in her own life. Yeah. So that's when I start to feel sympathy for her and mm. stop being irritated by her. Yeah. But this first scene at the fair is really cute. Yeah. I like yes. that when Johnny, like, she wants to ride this ride and Johnny's like, six people died on this. And <laughs> she's like, fuck you. And then they're on the Ferris wheel and she's like, you know, about six people died on this. <laughs> And She's the, just a fucking. They're just a couple of pranksters. Yeah, they're just, like it's it, the bullshit stories are really cute back and forth. But then we get to the wheel of fortune, which is basically just a giant roulette wheel. And this is when things start to change. She starts getting sick because she ate a bad hot dog. At least for where we're reading right now, it's all it's all been put on this hot dog. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and basically, Johnny just keeps betting winning bets, even to the point where the one time it lands on double zero, which is the house win, he pulled his chips off for that round, puts them back on, starts drawing a crowd, and he just starts taking this thing for all it's worth, which by the end of it, he walks away with $540, which I had it checked for today's money, that would be $3,686 oh, that nice. he walked away with. Yeah. And this is where Sarah first sees his mask. Yeah, he, as he's doing this, his eyes change color and, or seem to change they dark, color. It's like they turn black almost. Yeah. They just get really dark. And he's cold. Like, he's not... Distant. That, yeah, that kind of lovable, charming, warm person that was described earlier. Yeah, uh, she describes it, it looks like he's looking through the mm -hmm. wheel. But the crowd swarms after he lands, he puts it all on 19 Walks away with mm -hmm. this big prize. <laughs> nice. Very subtle king. And th at that point, he's like, all right, she looks terrible. I'm going to get her home. And he takes her back and <laughs> says, I love you in the car. And she says, what every man hopes to hear back. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Side note, did anybody check where this book came out? I did not. Chronologically in the release order. Because I wonder if this is the first instance of 19. Oh, it might be. I know this is very early on because it's the first in the Castle Rock books. Yes. And I want to so I want to say it's probably like in the first 10. Well, it came out in 1979. So does that mean anything to anyone? 1979. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Do you know what this means? Oh, my God. Johnny takes her home and gets her all squared away, puts her in bed and he says he's going to leave the car with her just in case she needs it. So he calls a cab and has a peaceful ride back home in the cab. Right? 
Okay, yeah. did this... <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> that's that's the book. Did this also make you guys kind of lament? Yeah, it's just like Johnny thinks later on in the book that if he had stayed another five minutes mm-hmm. or left five mm-hmm. minutes earlier, none of this would have happened. It's the the whole book is kind of fatalistic, actually, where there's there's not really much free will in this yeah in this universe. It's I'll, all destiny and fate. I can't help but think though, kind of going along that and also thinking about the fact that this incident happened at the fairground before his accident too. Maybe they were never meant to have that. Could be. Of course, it King has to punch us in the heart. By before, just before he leaves, she says, I love you. And then the book says, it would be four and a half years before she'd ever talk to Johnny Smith again. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? Johnny gets in the cab and uh, on his way home, two teens are drag racing down the street. The Charger, which is the, the car that was driving on the wrong side of the road, hits the cab dead on, not even trying to swerve. Johnny goes flying through the windshield about 25 feet landing in a marsh and he goes into a coma that he will stay in for the next four and a half years. Okay. So this is the point in the book uh, you mentioned earlier, Josh, that our main character now exits the story for quite a while. We get the story of our other main characters over the several years that he's in this coma. It's just kind of funny to me that it's a surprise here when It's the exact same plot device as in Christine, done much better. When Dennis is in his football accident, that's the point where we basically switch narrators and Dennis kind of isn't important or central to the story anymore. It's all outside. We We leave Dennis. But in this... Even as Johnny lays in a coma, he is still so central to, well, I would say everything else that happens, (laughs) but there are a couple chapters that you're like, what, why is this going on right now? Can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. The, his story with his parents who that's my most, I'm very excited to talk about his mom. (laughs) Yes. And Sarah He's so, he he's a ghost hanging over all of their lives. Ben, I attribute it working better in the dead zone because of the style it's written in, because it's not mm-hmm. his point of view that we're suddenly like robbed of and then we come back to. Do you feel like that is the reason or did you feel like there's something else that it was pulled off better for a different reason? Yeah, no, I think definitely hands down the writing mm-hmm. in general is okay. better. And it's a less dumb story. <laughs> so uh, I think that's the main thing. But yeah, no, it's it's definitely, it, it just reminded me of Dennis's, the way he removed Dennis from the story. And when you get back to him, it's like, oh, he's pretty much the same <laughs> as before. You don't feel how intense the rehab is. You know what I think makes this work better is that Dennis going away is what let all the supernatural crazy shit happen that he had to come back to with Dead Zone. These people just lived their lives without him. All that changed was he wasn't in the equation anymore. There was no force acting upon anything. And he just has to come to grips with fully natural time passing and leaving Mm -hmm. him behind. And I think that makes his struggle Uh, maybe a little more relatable. So in this time, because we spend a lot of time without Johnny, I just kind of want to go through what happens to pretty much all the characters we're about to meet in this span, starting with our stop in Castle Rock with a man just called the killer. Ah, man. I can't can't actually say anything about this chapter, I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then I'll just, I'll quickly blow through this this killer is by the bandstand which i remember when we talked about needful things Mm -hmm. he said it was very important he recognizes a girl that he knows from the cafe or or some nearby place and is like hey come look at this thing it's super cool and then he chokes her to death and rapes her and everyone's like must have been a drifter can't be a local Mm -hmm. because no one would do that here and then no consequences happen with that right now (laughs) 
it is in fact not mentioned again. Yeah. For a long time. Is it important that we know he had to wear a clothes pin on his penis? <laughs> no. Okay. But yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's a very, oh, what the fuck is the guy's name? Tom Harris? Is that the guy's name that wrote the Hannibal books? Harris, yeah. There's a scene in the book Red Dragon that I think is like the quintessential. You go through the whole book and there's like this serial killer. But then you get one chapter that's basically his origin story. Why he's all fucked up. And I feel like that's what that was. (laughs) This is the hint this guy's been traumatized his whole life. Yeah. Basically. And now we are too. (laughs) Yeah. Another question. Is Stephen King okay with his mom? (laughs) <laughs> Can we check with him? I think we've asked this question before. I think, we have. I think so. <laughs> it's just worrying. I think he knows that moms are like the bedrock of the family unit. Yeah. And when a mom is nuts, mm. that is, it is psychological. It, it feels warfare. like a very primal thing. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. Well, it's the person you're instinctually supposed to go to for comfort. And that's the person that is tormenting your life. Like Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just, where does Vera fall on our scale of bad king moms? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, let's jump to Herb and Vera. Let's, yeah. let's talk about how adorable Herb is and how insane Vera is. This is what I like about this book and this storyline in particular is you say Herb's adorable. He is. But no one comes out clean here. True. Like, at, these characters feel so real. Even Sarah, whose entire identity is based off of who she is dating and or married to whatever but like their parents they both have some real ups and downs yeah his mother is a crazy fundamentalist who believes that god is hiding in the mantle of the earth underneath the south pole she was a bit fanatic before Mm. this accident traumatized her and then these you know, people started grifting her mm-hmm. in her grief and she they almost lost everything. She was giving money to people. She joined two doomsday cults. As as they are also trying to pay for Johnny's medical bills yeah. because mm-hmm. he's still alive. He's just in a coma. So they can't afford for her to be falling into these traps. She she's a sympathetic Margaret White. She is. Which I, is why the dad doesn't get scot free, get off scot free. Because he frequently tells random people how much he hates his wife. <laughs> yeah. Just anyone that will sit still long <laughs> enough for him to be sad at. No, you still feel his love for mm-hmm. her because he does, he's with her the whole way. Mm-hmm. He is by her side and he's like, I, I still love her and I know she's crazy, but we're just going to get through this. And I think because she ends up dying later, she never gets to the point where we can totally hate her either. No, I, I think that. Their problem comes from Vera's inability to let this accident not be her fault. Because when they get that 2 a.m. phone call saying that this has happened, the first thing she does is blame herself and and her because they're being punished. Like something. Yeah, Yeah, they did. This happened to Johnny and it's because we're bad people. I love that scene. It's so short. It's literally like a page and a half. Mm -hmm. But when they get the the call, it's so, well, it's obviously tragic and sad, but the way the scene is, is described, I could not help but see it, and I usually try to save fan casting for the movie <laughs> episode, but I could not help but see the scene as directed by the Coen brothers, because it is so over-the-top melodramatic, and he even describes it as, like, darkly comedic. As he, Herb, is sitting on the phone getting this terrible news, and Vera is on the floor literally, like, wailing, (laughs) and the police officer on the other end is just, like, awkwardly, so yeah, that that (laughs) happened, Um, oops, sorry. I couldn't help but think, I really want to see a comedic (laughs) Dead Zone movie. (laughs) I also really liked this family even more after the hospital, during the hospital scene, because Parents come and Sarah comes and at first Vera is cruel to her. And that is such an awkward thing when you are not, you know, legally tied to this person. You are just sort of there. You are at the mercy of how the family is going to treat you. And I only feel strongly about this because I used to be a an estate paralegal and I've seen these things start off very sweet and go sour as soon as, you know, 
money. So to see her treat her that way and then later apologize to her and they don't ever really develop a relationship, but she does with his dad. And it's it's very nice. He even goes to her wedding. Yeah, I thought that was pretty great. Mm-hmm. So I, I appreciated that we had that because it was true to her character. Mm-hmm. But then she did apologize and like, you know, I'm sorry I was if I was harsh with you, I'm upset. It, it humanizes Vera. So which is why I think I'm fascinated by this character. Of everything in this book, weirdly, Johnny's mom is something that stuck in my memory really hard i don't Interesting. know why. yeah it's i i am she she warns him and she's right mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> well yeah I mean, you know what i mean she she's like the crazy religious lady mm-hmm. but what she understands to be happening with him like what's happening with him is just as outrageous as you know mm-hmm. her beliefs yeah and she she's constantly saying once he wakes up like you are meant God meant you for this. You are going to do something great. And she knows he's going to wake up. Like She never mm-hmm. loses yeah. faith. Everyone else does, understandably. It's like not a blame thing, but she does not. In fact, yeah. she's the only one who doesn't ever, it never says secretly hopes he would die. Everybody yeah. else, there's at it's least like, one moment they're done. like, God, I hope he just dies so we can be at peace. And that's an amazing bit of um, writing too. The scene, yeah, the scene where his dad, it's, a page and a half that spans the course of like two years. Yeah. And shows her watching Vera's deterioration. Mm-hmm. It is kind of heartbreaking. I love this book. <laughs> it's really good. The character writing is really fucking fantastic. It's rare that you get a glimpse at the ripple effect of something so traumatic. Mm. And that is fascinating to watch is how this one incident can affect so many people. I'm assuming with the way this book is laid out, as we've been meeting these other characters, we're going to see how this ripple hits them. Mm-hmm. In fact, let's see how this ripple is going to start affecting Dog Kicker. Greg Stilson, now we catch back up with him, 16 years Did older. Did we even give him the name? No, the I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, Greg Stilson is now the mayor of this town. I am baffled that that, because the scene no, with the dog. he's a sociopath. Yeah, Sociopaths go to... Like high offices. Yeah, but he's the kind of sociopath who is like a serial killer, not a president of the United States. See, (laughs) here's a thing. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt your thought. No, go for it. It's just the weird amount of stuff in this book that's still pretty timeless. Uh, (laughs) This was written in the 70s. It takes place in the early to mid 70s. But it is a book about a charismatic man rising in power through politics who is a dangerous narcissist Mm. and also about a woman who is caught in a web of lies perpetrated by weird religious right-wing conspiracy theories. (laughs) We never get better. (laughs) (laughs) We just don't learn. What I'm trying to say is, do you know what this means? (laughs) Oh my God. Tell me. I'm glad I started that. <laughs> I this scene pissed me off though. The he blackmails this banker because he's gonna That's run way later. Oh, yeah, we're we're actually he's not the mayor yet. Oh when yeah, we catch oh. back up. He's like a councilman or oh that's right something low level. Oh, I don't even think he's that. I think he's a real estate salesman when he when he uh, oh, aligns yeah, himself that, with, that the, uh, with the biker who has a fucking like swastika earrings and yeah. just oh yeah the the weird uh, charismatic narcissistic politician aligns himself with the Nazis. Huh. And for <laughs> for a Nazi, he's got such a a fun name, Sunny Element. It seems like a, just a kindly old man. Turns out Nazi. This scene is intense because greg is cool calm and collected dealing with this nazi biker that got pulled over and he's dealing with until suddenly he just grabs a vase and whips it right past the dude's face and goes zero to 60 and we discover that stilson doesn't like to send people to jail he likes to use them he likes to say we'll let you off about this thing and you'll either do some work for the city or you'll do some work for me I lost the thread of what he does at this point that he could or could not send someone to jail. I thought he was a real estate agent. Yeah, yeah. That, this so might the, have been later. No, this scene, that's what it says. It implies that maybe he's like a volunteer. For some reason, he he had him pulled over 
in town and then he winds up in his office. It was also very yeah. unclear Real to me when I read jail. it. Real Yes. <laughs> Home jail. But he just says, uh, I'll let you go, but you owe me a favor. And that ominously hangs in the air until the end of what we're reading today. He just has political pull. Yeah. Because I think it's implied that this guy was renting one of his properties. And he, because he pulls out a bunch of drugs that he's like, I found this. Oh, yeah. And I could have you put away. Okay, that makes more sense. But I won't because now you owe me. And the biker's like, I can murder the shit out of this guy, but eh, he's crazy. <laughs> I like him. He's pretty insane, and I'm into it. Now let's catch up with Sarah. Sarah holds off on moving on for uh, a good long while after Johnny goes into the coma, and she hopes he'll come out. There's a guy named Walt who asks her out, and he reminds her too much of Johnny, and so she says no. Eventually, giving in to dating, eventually giving in to a proposal, and getting married and having a baby. So now she is Sarah Hazlitt. She has a kid named Denny, like that kid from The Room. Oh my god. <laughs> it's See, all I'm... coming together. Oh my god, you're right. Do you know what this means? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Tell all us. coming together. Oh. Uh... <laughs> we get a brief stint with uh, Andrew Dohe, a lightning rod salesman. <laughs> right. <laughs> For whatever I reason, forgot about this chapter because it has <laughs> not come back yet. A and whole I don't chapter remember. of a dude who stops in a bar and is like, "Hey, I can protect your building from lightning," and they're like, "No, we're good." When uh, we jump back to them having their baby, it's 1974. She has her baby on Halloween down the hall, like in the same hospital where Johnny is. She takes a moment to think about that, and I thought that was a really nice mm-hmm. that he's he's never been forgotten. It's really nice. We also, in this same time period, find two kids who are having a snowball fight and find a dead body. The body of 17-year-old Carol Dunbarger, the fourth victim of the Castle Rock Strangler. So we went from, I'm presuming the that was the first victim that we in saw the, earlier. Yeah, in the, mm-hmm. in the gazebo or whatever. And so now we're up to four, so they're killing one a year, I guess? Well, I think they said that, like, the last victim was two years prior, and so everyone thought it was over. And then we get uh, one of those, like, mid-chapter chapter chapter breaks, and it's like, it wasn't. And then (laughs) the chapter ends. I hate the chapter structure of this book so much. I, like, the small chapters inside bigger chapters, I don't like it. Very confusing when you're listening to it, and you know you have to go through chapter 14. (laughs) Does it yeah. not? And there's 152 chapters. Jesus Christ. <laughs> but now we get back to, to Johnny, finally, because Johnny talks. He says something kind of in his sleep, and a nurse notices that he's, he's stretching out. And we get a, a glimpse inside Johnny's head. Johnny walks a lonely road. The only road that he has ever known. Why is, oh wait, God. why is this happening? He doesn't know where it goes. But it's home to him, and he walks alone. Why? Why is this going on? Did the the this description of this dream world? I just kept. I started singing <laughs> Boulevard of Broken Dreams in my head because, like, the, the, that's what the imagery evoked to me. How that's <laughs> that's wild, my man. <laughs> what? The, weirdly enough, I read this entire book and never thought about Green Day once. <laughs> How many times do you think about the mountain goats, though? Several. I see. Exactly. Not gonna lie. It's the, I don't know what it is. It was about the, this moment that we get, it's kind of a dream sequence, mm-hmm. where he's hearing little snips of things that have been going on around him for the past four years, and there's just this timelessness, etherealness to it. It seemed apropos. There's something about this book, and maybe it's just me, maybe it's the effect of almost three years of only reading Stephen King, basically, (laughs) but there's something about this book that had so many echoes of other things that he has written before and since. Because this, the way he describes it, it it reminds me of the old hospital, or the, the old kingdom from uh, Kingdom Hearts. Uh, <laughs> the part where Mickey shows up was crazy. Yeah. I feel uh, that way, though, about a lot of his books. Mm-hmm. 
and and I think that's why I like King so much because he builds this bigger world that is connected in so many ways and some of them are very obvious and mm-hmm. you recognize them and others are just like this tickle in the back of your head you're like something about this there were is so familiar. many there, there were so many small little met names that yeah. were like thrown out once that I had to google and be like this has to be something right? <laughs> this has got to be someone we know or is going to be in another uh, book or something even the fucking lightning rod salesman I was like oh this could l-. I was trying to think of the timeline to see if it could be the reverend, reverend mm-hmm. yeah From he didn't write yeah. that book for 35 years or something like that. But he planted this character. But he definitely planted the idea of this reverend. He would do that, though. That's what's messed up. I 100% believe that was true. (laughs) He wakes up and thinks that maybe he's been out for a week, maybe two weeks. Mm -hmm. He touches the nurse that is there when he wakes up and immediately knows everything about her kids. And that one of them has to have a surgery because a firecracker blew up in his face and he got gunpowder in his eye. He says hello and makes her shit her pants out of fright. (laughs) And uh, that's when he notices that there are really no get well cards. And there is a aged photo of Jesus. I feel so dumb. I didn't think about that at all, that he would wake up and the clue to him that something wasn't right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because you would think you'd have like flowers and cards and stuff. And he's like, nobody came to see me. Nobody (laughs) sent me a card. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's been so long. And then we meet James Brown, that James Brown, right? Yeah. Yeah. A completely arbitrary, uh, completely arbitrary detail. Yeah. Soul singer and neurologist, James Brown. (laughs) Um, And when Johnny grabs his hand, that's when he finds out, oh, fuck, it's been almost five years. That's just got to be a lot at once, don't you think? I do like that the hospital took extremely great care of him as if he was going to wake up and need to use his body. I mean, they, you know what I mean, though? They were, they were working his muscles as Mm -hmm. much as they could. And though I can't remember what the line was, but it indicated that they put a little more into him than you might necessarily get if you're in a coma for that. Right. They, they got like some sort of grant or like it was part of some sort of project. They were able to do tests and stuff on him Mm -hmm. thinking he won't wake up, but we'll get data out of this. But if all this works, he might wake up. They call Herb and Vera and this scene was also kind of rough because Vera just justifies every terrible decision she's made in this moment because everything she did must have been what brought him back. I like the way that Johnny and his dad handle her together, though, mm-hmm. where Johnny's just sort of looking past her at his dad going, hey, OK, yeah, I know. I'll I'll play along as much as I need just to keep mom calm and this, is, yeah, kind of on her side, but recognizes she's been crazy. <laughs> th- this is one of the very one of the most human moments of Herb and Vera because when they get the call Herb is immediately terrified Mm -hmm. because he's like oh I can't even enjoy this good news because this is going to drive her further over the edge which it does. And it's insane that for things to be so bad that that is the immediate concern Mm -hmm. he has that's so sad. Uh, Yeah and he has to take her aside and be like listen when we get to the hospital you're gonna shut the hell up about God (laughs) and you're just gonna be his mom and it's such an intense scene and it's like hard to read because he's being so you know stern or whatever but also it's so understandable that Mm -hmm. he's been suffering this for four and a half years you know by himself Mm -hmm. there's a line that he says that I thought was really really summed up this moment when they're talking in the room and he looks at his mom and he says there was more mother than madness in her eyes because it's after they hug and he gives her the cryptic let them give you medicine and like gives her that little fortune reading she kind of softens a little and he can see the struggle in mm-hmm. her and that's what kind of makes him be a little more patient yeah. i think he also finds out here that sarah is married and that's a real bummer you fall in love for the first time and then you yeah. fall into a coma and yeah. then you wake up and she's married and has a kid <laughs> But this is when we meet CM's favorite character, Dr. Wysak. Tommy Wiseau. Dr. Tommy. Dr. Tommy Wiseau. (laughs) Sam Wysak. I fucking love this guy. (laughs) This old man with, uh, seemed like Doc Brown from Back to the Future. No, he's got long black hair. It is so ruined for me so hard. I can't. (laughs) Is that the movie? No, I think that's Tommy Wiseau. 
Oh, and, and the disaster artist. I mean, it's it's James Franco and it's Tommy Wiseau, and I'm just so messed up about it. <laughs> I just pictured of him as like kind of middle aged. Me too. It's because he had like wild white hair, so I imagined him. Oh, I didn't remember it being white. I I imagined it because when Johnny wakes up and finds out it has been this long, he wails in misery. I'm 27? (laughs) I'm like, oh, fuck you. But yeah, so I just kind of imagine this guy being in his like maybe 40s. They're running EEGs and stuff on him trying to map out his brain to see what has changed. And that's when we find out that he can't see a picnic table. The dead zone. Sorry. Which is not like... <laughs> it's so I, cool. I, I wondered where the name Dead Zone came from. So CM, talk about the Dead Zone. They're mapping it out to see if there are any areas of his brain that are damaged. And so they're giving him these basic tests and he's naming things. And Josh, as you said, he cannot... He sees a picnic table. He's like, I know what it, I know what it is. And I cannot recover that word. I cannot tell you what it is. And he's he coins his own cool term. He's like, it's in the dead zone. They say, imagine a tire or what is it? A tire leaning up underneath a a stop sign. And he imagines a car wash or something. And he's like, (laughs) well, shit. It's a really cool way to once again show something very scary. Well, and I think we can all relate to that because that's happened to us before. Not to that extreme level, but have you ever forgotten a word? (laughs) Yeah, or something and you're like i once couldn't remember cookie jar i called it a cookie keeper (laughs) yeah yeah it was in the dead zone (laughs) jar jar was in your dead zone i do like that a lot um oh what i was gonna say is all the things that they say that they speculate that all the things that are in his dead zone are all car related they say that it's it's a set it's during the press conference i believe what about the picnic table you drive to picnic. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, the picnic table doesn't work. But picnic he does. Table's he part says, of a new set. He says something. He's like that. There's a set, and they're all car related. And I'm like, oh, I guess he got in a car accident, and it deleted all <laughs> car things. Deleted all car trauma. Because later on, it keeps happening when he sees the house, or when he sees the doctor's mother. Mm-hmm. He can't see the street address. It's on the street. I guess. I kind of hated this part. This is my least favorite part of everything we've read is the this next scene with Wysak. So Johnny touches his hand and then he's like, give me your wallet. And then he's like, all right. And he holds his wallet and then he pulls out a picture of his mom and then he holds the picture of Wysak's mom, then sees her entire life flash before him, except for things that are in the dead zone. And just over and over, the boy is safe. Just keeps coming through this this mm-hmm. psychic read of a photo, and he comes out of it, and he tells Wysak, "Your mom's alive. She didn't die. She just got amnesia, and then she got her memory back, mostly. But the trauma of losing you blocked. Is, yeah, you're she's in not her allowed. Yeah, but she's in California. She still has dreams about you. You can look into this, and you will find her." Did you think it was interesting that when he finds her, he doesn't tell her who he is? I thought that was great. He just call, mm. he does call. He hears her voice and then hangs up pretty much. Like it's <laughs> that's the right thing to do. I think mm. he's thought she was dead. Why? This whole, she's thought he was. They both thought that each other was dead. So it's better they both be dead to each other. Yes. No. Well, then, it brings about the the like question that this book I feel is bringing up is. Is this power of Johnny's a blessing or a curse? Because it seems every time he uses it, there's there's some amount of bad luck it brings. Uh, from the very beginning, when he wins all the money, he says his mother always said, found money brings bad luck. Later on, when he he does his reading at the press conference, spoiler, it kills his mom. <laughs> <laughs> In a happy way. What? She's happy about it. Oh, yeah. She does love it. (laughs) I don't know. I just, we don't have to spend any time on this. I just think being reunited with your mother after a tragedy like that and you were separated, I I think that could have been a beautiful story. Okay. Let me 
tear this happy moment no, down. No, I don't want you to. Uh, it's the <laughs> 70s. It's not like now if they reconnected and they could video chat and stuff. Mm. Like, it's, it would be a real hassle. Oh, you're to... right. It's too hard to meet my long lost mother I thought was dead. So fuck it. Oh, oh so, my God. Okay. So your plan is I should drop my life, go across country, give my mother the shock she's been protecting herself from for the past 40 years, maybe kill her. <laughs> yeah, because none of you are worth it. And you can't have a beautiful relationship together. And she can't repair that trauma that's clearly still plaguing her because she has nightmares about it. But isn't it better to let her live out her life? She has a new life. She is, Her life has moved. The world's moved on since then. Oh so, yeah. my God. Listen, you There's both make for both. <laughs> you you both make excellent points, but I did just remember something I meant to say a half an hour ago. <laughs> and that is the way that this sh- this book shows that four and a half years have passed is hysterical. <laughs> Why? What do you mean? Okay, so when Johnny wakes up and he finds out that four and a half years have passed, it has went from the early 70s to the slightly later early 70s. The thing, the first thing that he sees that freaks him out oh. <laughs> is a pen. I <laughs> a see, flare pen. I see new pens all the time. It never to, freaks me out. <laughs> I had to Google what the fuck a flare pen was. And it is just so funny. The like 70s landmarks that he uses to show the passage of time. It would be like if this book was set in the 90s, it would be like, Oh, when I passed out, no one had a computer. And when I woke up, everyone had the internet. It's crazy. But this is, when I went to sleep, the biggest jump in technology was I can use the phone to call across the country now. It was a corded phone, now it's cordless. Yeah. (laughs) And that's, it's just really funny that King in the late 70s was like, how do I get people to get that time has passed. I know they invented that pen <laughs> that is now ubiquitous in 1979. Do you ever, I guess. Do you ever have a favorite pen? Well, of course. Maybe that was his Kings. <laughs> <laughs> That's what really marked that time in his life. Yes, yeah, it, it would pen. make sense. A the dark half he also based uh, pencils, several plot mm-hmm. points on his favorite writing utensils. Yeah. At this point, it becomes kind of a roller coaster for Johnny as. Now people, he, a David Bright, a journalist comes in and tries to do an interview with him. And he's like, hey, you're psychic. And John is like, no, I'm not. And he's like, all right, I'm still going to write a story about you anyway. (laughs) And then he leaves. A surgeon flies across the country to start the surgeries on him. His rehab is going to be brutal, but he is going to be able to get up and walk and use his whole body again, which is great. Sarah shows up. He's very excited to see her, but also obviously jealous because she's moved on. That wasn't my takeaway. At this point, he's miserable. Yeah, but he is happy to see her. It's bittersweet. Yeah. 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 And he tells her about her missing wedding ring and... She gets a. F- she's scared of him again when he mm-hmm. does it because he. She re- bends down and kisses him, and he has that moment. And so he tells her what he saw, and she goes home and she finds it, and she's so freaked out that she flushes it down the toilet. It's like pawn it. <laughs> yeah, I love she- that she didn't want to find it. <laughs> well, and I think I think she doesn't want to find it because she still loves him. And oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, every single chapter that we get with Sarah, mm-hmm. it's just her getting slowly more freaked out and also just like immediately shutting off the part that's like definitely still have definitely still yeah. in love with Johnny. And getting really angry with her very nice, perfectly fine husband. And yeah. they just have this exchange that made me think of Rosie from Rose Matter, mm-hmm. where she has that rage in her with Bill and she has to plant the seeds. Because Sarah has this moment. Her yes, her whole relationship with her husband gave me weird Rose Matter vibes. Yeah. Because you say that he treats her well. I don't remember, but I just, there's some bad feeling I have. I mm. don't remember whether there, that comes to anything. Well, so far he treats her yeah. okay, it seems. Because <laughs> there's a throwaway line of, uh, he never demanded anything of her. Or if he did, he just demanded it so slowly that and gradually <laughs> that she didn't notice. And I'm like, hmm, that's a little... 
iffy. <laughs> seems a little manipulative. <laughs> the uh, former, uh, or no, the current assistant principal from the, the high school he was working at comes in, offers him a job. So he he's getting back to through the physical therapy. Now he's going to be getting a job. He's slowly getting ready to leave this hospital someday. And it is this day he is in physical therapy and knows that his physical therapist's house is on fire because she forgot to turn off the stove. And Wysak has been warning him because he's had these these moments with different people. And he's like, you got to be careful because people are already talking and it's mm-hmm. going to get out of hand. And then it does at the press conference. Well, I just like in this the whole fire thing, everybody makes it as difficult as possible to check to see if her house is legitimately on fire. It was excruciatingly slow. <laughs> <laughs> so he saves her from losing everything. And then, of course, this blows up. And he finds out in the morning there are news crews in the lobby waiting to talk to him. CM, do you want to talk about the we've talked around this press Mm -hmm. conference. Tell us about the press conference. He completely ignores his doctor's advice to just (laughs) play it cool because all he has to do is just be boring and dull and they would go away. And instead, he reads this this pushy guy. He thrusts his sister's necklace at him and he starts he kind of loses himself. So he's not, I don't know that he can really control like what he's saying or doing. So mm. what comes out is, is something very personal to this rude individual. This guy's being a dick. He gets so upset with Johnny that he knocks him down trying to get away from him. And the crowd is kind of freaking out. And so he just completely screws himself over in that yes. regard, like making them even more interested in this mm-hmm. spectacle that is happening. Th- this scene is just the press conference at the end of the first Iron Man. <laughs> like, <laughs> he goes out on stage and he's like, I'll answer a few questions. And they all start pouring in. The doctor's like, hey, this is a sick man. Let him be. And all the reporters are like, okay, fine. And they ask, they're like, hey, are you psychic? And he's like, yeah, more or less. <laughs> and it's not just that, though. It's the he's he's doing the reading. But then at a certain point, he basically talks with the little girl's voice. Yeah, yeah. that was spooky. That, well, I the, thought it was the kid, the the the, the reporter's sister. voice. It it, no, because, it's, the, it's his sister's voice. It's no, because he a, was a talking to girly Terry. voice comes out. It was just an adolescent voice. Oh, because <laughs> he's <laughs> talking to Terry. What that was his sister. Oh, uh, OK nickname I also, this is completely irrelevant <laughs> right. i don't know why i decided to go so hard on this one point <laughs> but how I do, dare you i do love that the reporter knocks him down leaves and then doesn't get far before the reporter faints yeah. that is hilarious i also like that wyzak was being very reasonable about explaining like hey you know what guys he was in a coma there's some stuff going on with his brain it's all scientific though it can it can all be explained and this is just something we haven't come across before. It's not a huge deal. And then he makes it a very huge deal. <laughs> <laughs> that night, he gets a call sent to his room. His mother, while watching the news report on TV, had a stroke. And so he is bound and determined to leave. Wyzek very kindly is like, don't leave, you idiot. I'm going to drive you. <laughs> You're not going to get on a bus. And drives him to the hospital where his mother is. And I love this scene between Johnny and Herb outside the room. And Johnny's just blaming himself. This is all my fault. I don't know why this happened. And Herb twists his ear. And he's mm-hmm. like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we find out that this is something he did as a kid. Well, that, that moment is very reminiscent of the way his mom reacted when he got into the car accident. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he because he thinks that she was so upset, but then that's when Herb's like, no, she was thrilled for you and thrilled this was happening. She had a stroke because she stopped taking her medication. Right. <laughs> and she would have stopped sooner had you not told her mm-hmm. to do it, which is a whole thing that we just jumped over about. She decided, oh, if God wants me to live, I'll live. Oof. Also, she joined a cult. We didn't also- touch on that, but that. <laughs> She yeah. joins a few. Yeah. yeah. Then we we see Johnny go into the room and he sits with his mom and he realizes how many times over the past four years were roles reversed, which I thought was a really touching moment. Mm-hmm. And she's calling for him and doesn't realize he's there at first. And I don't know if it's because she's about to die or because she's come to peace with everything after this stroke or what's happening. But this calmed, toned down version of Vera I was like, now I'm sad. Well, it's because this she makes this moment about him mm-hmm. and how he is special. 
and and that's her that's like all she cares about right now Uh, yeah and in this moment she gets to have a peaceful passing because in her eyes and as far as she know everything that she's believed and all the tribulations she's gone through the for the past several years have been justified the last thing no it, no i know it, i'm like, just thinking what a way to die like you're yeah. super wrong but you think you're right and that'd be great <laughs> except is she super wrong because well no her like i said earlier like, she's god yeah. will bring johnny back Comes johnny's back. back he's going to do something great that might happen well, you can, <laughs> yeah and great can be described oh this is some this is gonna be a lot of different words episode two <laughs> okay because i yeah yeah the uh, ending i'm oh very God. excited <laughs> i'm so nervous yeah. when you are excited for an ending ben i am <laughs> nervous i have one last question before we end this okay episode, and it'll tie into that we're gonna check back in cm thank you for wearing that shirt it reminded me we have, we have to go back to greg stilson uh for those of you you can't see cm's wearing her baby let's fuck shirt Oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> I usually wear it when we record. <laughs> this scene is just insane. Ben, do you want to explain this, talk about this scene with Greg Stilson and uh, the councilman's nephew? Yeah, we, we come back to Greg Stilson. This is years after the last scene that we've seen him. Mm-hmm. And at this point, he's in, yeah, he's taking care of a little chore for this council person. He has this snot nose shitty little rich kid in his office and this kid is like smirking knowing that this guy can't do anything he seems like kind of a joke until greg stilson pulls out this shirt that this kid got in trouble for it's a shirt that says baby let's fuck (laughs) very cool (laughs) and he sets it on fire in front of this kid and when the kid freaks out he beats the shit out of him and then cuts him with a broken Pepsi <laughs> bottle. And while all the while thinking, boy, I got to be careful because <laughs> yeah. I want to kill this kid. <laughs> That's the best part is like, this is him toned yeah, down. Yeah, this is his self-control. Mm-hmm. In his soundproof office that they I make kept- a point See, and that's why I was so confused earlier when we we're talking about the biker, mm-hmm. because it seems like he is a cop. Yeah, he he's he's that just, first seems very convoluted. He's just the establishment. He okay, I'm sorry, he just reminds me of Norman. He seems like this yeah. like that kind of cop to me. And in, in the way he's taking charge of situations, doing it with this mm-hmm. seems like police authority. It's just so yeah. weird. And and we we've mentioned I took us cheap swing at Republicans earlier because it's what I do. But this, it, Greg Stilson doesn't represent the evil of one side or the other. That's a <laughs> lens we can bring to nowadays if I want to. But he just represents... Political corruption. Yeah, it's he's the evil of mm-hmm. uh, wanting power. He's a scary dude. Also, he's built like a fucking truck. Think of the babies him and Annie Wilkes would have. Uh, no, so I don't appreciate that. <laughs> I was just thinking, this is why I like Annie Wilkes, George Stark, mm. because they are not, they're they are evil. They're bad guys. They kill. They're not scum, though. Yeah, this guy's a real piece of shit. Yeah. He's blackmailing his banker friend because the guy's having an affair and he wants him to squeeze his rich friends to get campaign funds for him and he only needs what is it like 50,000 yeah yeah raised it's not even yeah. a ton oh, in gonna, the 70s that's right oh yeah that's true he's gonna because he's gonna run for the house uh, as an independent and knows that this guy from the bank helped run another campaign that was successful so he's now gonna blackmail him to be like hey and you're he a part keeps of giving now. this guy shit saying oh yeah everyone's gonna think i'm joking yeah all right, so that scene is actually the the last scene. So before we wrap up, we're going to jump one chapter back and we're going to talk about Johnny's job offer. Ooh, <laughs> I thought he was kind of in the wrong in this scene. He's really? At, yeah. He's living at home with his dad and he's getting all these things in the mail. People asking him, touch this because my son is missing or something happened to this person there. And it's really heartbreaking and sad. And he's just sending these things back. He's paying for the postage. He's not replying. And 
eventually this guy from a magazine uh the inside view comes knocking and johnny tries to get rid of him the guy kind of won't take no for an he's being really pushy and then johnny's like okay fine i'll talk you know he's like give me five minutes of your time to just explain i want to offer you a job obviously you probably have a lot of medical bills like hundreds thousands of dollars worth and this can help you and so he's telling him about this gig you know they hire quote unquote psychics to do like a monthly piece mm-hmm. and it, it's complete bullshit and it doesn't matter. He's like, yeah, but you're popular. So yeah. we just want to use you and you'll make a ton of money and it'll be great. $30,000 a year. Sign me up. <laughs> and Johnny physically assaults him. <laughs> like, <laughs> is that great. okay? You sat yeah. and listened. Uh, the I... guy's a creep, but he, he physically, he put his hands on him. Don't just don't put your hands on people unless they ask you to. That's fair. That's definitely fair. I think the thing that really took it over the edge was when he says, mm-hmm. people can send you stuff. We're working in a contract. You can just keep their stuff. He, yeah, he's not he, a good guy. He refers to the quote he says when he when he has him pulled face to face. He says, you're a ghoul, a grave mm-hmm. robber of people's dreams, and then throws them down. And that's exactly it's, what it is. That's true. But he could have also said, OK, I listened. That's what you asked. No, thank you. And gone inside. He didn't have to physically solve it. Sorry, it's, it's the mid-70s and he's not a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> As was the culture at the time. <laughs> well, the, he's emotional because like this kind, this guy represents the kind of people that exploited his mom. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. While he was in this coma. It, it all makes sense. But I'm just, just not, I can't support him doing that. It's like, just tell the guy to fuck off. But fair. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just just tell the guy you wished his mother died the day after he was born. <laughs> Don't act on it. Right. <laughs> All right, that that brings us to the end. Um Ben, you said you had one more thing before we we wrap things up. So my my just final parting question that I want to know for Josh and I I tried to think so hard how to phrase this without putting any ideas in your head. All right. How do you think in the second half of the book, Greg Stilson is going to tie into Johnny's story? <laughs> I have no <laughs> earthly idea. Because so far, whatsoever. they've had nothing to do with each no. other. Greg is in New Hampshire and Johnny is in Maine. And the only interconnection they've had is Sarah's husband, who has political aspirations mentions that at this party with his law firm people were laughing about this dummy greg stilson who is thinking about running for congress or whatever yeah and we also have this castle rock strangler floating around here Mm -hmm. somewhere and a lightning rod salesman i've got (laughs) no idea what's happening i uh, yeah i could not even fathom to guess can't even begin the the closest i could get would be sarah inviting him to an event at which both her husband and Greg Stilson are and they reach for the same glass and then their Ooh, eyes it's lock. it's like Lady in the Tramp? Yeah. yeah. Okay. He, he, <laughs> flat, he has a psychic vision of their wedding. Yeah. <laughs> that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us next time where we finish The Dead Zone. For Joshua Kahn and Benjamin Graham, I'm CM Alexander reminding you, don't make a picture out of an ink blot. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thanks for listening to The Dead Zone Part 1, and thank you to our patron Jared Hazelwood for picking this book as part of our Patreon selection series. If you want to pick our next read, visit us at patreon.com slash dairypublicradio where you can make your pick at our $50 tier and you'll find many more tiered rewards and bonus episodes. We currently have over 20 bonus episodes that you can't get anywhere else, including our live RPGs, my reading of short stories, discussion of other authors and stories, binaural recordings of our journey through a haunted house, and sometimes we post our episodes early. You can sign up, download all our bonus content, get your tiered rewards, and then cancel the next month and leave us all alone. Which is totally okay, by the way. Our Patreon is for people to show us some love and get a little something extra in return. If showing us love in monetary form isn't for you, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge help to us. Or follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio and Twitter at Dairy Public. And if you just want to say hi or share your ideas, send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. 
And final plug before I get to our outtakes, visit our Etsy store for cool merch, not just our merch, but also Stephen King-related stuff. And let us know what you think and if there's other things that you'd like to see on there. Enjoy our outtakes. And today we are reading The Dead Zone <laughs> through chapter. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> wow, the, this really the was top. through a haze, huh? <laughs> uh, I've I realized you I realize now you need all that information. <laughs> And today we are reading and today we are reading through part one of the Dead Zone, which is through chapter 14. And this is our Patreon selection series from our awesome Patreon member, Jared Hazelwood. If you are reading along, spoilers. If you're not reading along, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? We're what fucking is going on? on? <laughs> Can I keep any of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm We're sure. Just gonna roll with I'm it. sure you're fine. And we have Josh leading our discussion. Thank yeah. God, because okay. I couldn't do it. <laughs> hey, you, since we're keeping a tight ship today, <laughs> um, I'm sorry we made you wait so long. No, that was yeah, it's, it's worth like, it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.